be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for Jesus. And as we start uh, this new series today, I pray that I uh, would be uh, completely out of the, the Spirit's way today and that you would say what you want to say to each and every person here uh, through, through the reading and preaching of your word. We again thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, several years ago now, uh, Cheryl and I had the opportunity to go to the wedding of a friend, and we got uh, to the reception, and it was time for the toast. Now, I've got to tell you, I love the toast. Uh, I, I love the toast because you never know what's going to be said. And a lot of times, it is awesome, and it gives you a story to tell for years to come, which was the case, which was the case in this wedding. Uh, this toast did not disappoint me at all. And so first of all, what happened in this wedding was the maid of honor got up and she gave it a toast and she had note cards uh, filled out. It was well thought out, tastefully done, even inspiring. The maid of honor hit a home run with her toast. Then the best man gets up. He had clearly been drinking, just to be honest with you. He had clearly been drinking, and the first words out of his mouth and kind of slurred speech was, I wish I had thought of something to say. I leaned forward. I knew this was about to be the best toast I've ever seen in my life. So I leaned forward. I know this is going to be awesome. And he begins to go on and on to an uncomfortable level about how great the bride is. He's talking about her beauty and her personality and how great she is. And then the best man turns to his, the groom, who is his brother, and says, my only regret is that I didn't get to her first. I don't think that's his only regret the next day. I think that might be number two on the regret list. It was so awkward. I don't know if you've ever had a dinner like that. A, a few years ago, uh, my sister was coming in from out of town, and uh, they called ahead. I'm like, hey, we'd love, we're coming through. We'd love to meet with you. And we were like, hey, let's meet at Olive Garden. All right, let's, let's do that. And so we go, and we're sitting at Olive Garden, and her son, bless his heart, uh, was kind of motion sickness from the ride. And we are in Olive Garden, and he gets sick all over the table at Olive Garden. It was awkward. And I, I'll, I'll tell you how awkward it was. It was years before I would make eye contact with that table again. I held it against the table. We, we would walk past that table every time. It's just like... It was so awkward. Waitresses are trying to clean it up. We're, we're walking to the Target to buy some clothes for my nephew. Right? It was just an incredibly awkward thing. And maybe you've had a dinner that goes that way or a lunch. Maybe you've had one that is incredibly awkward. Someone had a little too much to drink at, at the dinner or lunch, and they started to say something really inappropriate. Or two people, this is more since the pandemic, but two people with differing political opinions just start to argue, and it's so awkward. Or some family baggage comes up, and you thought you guys had buried it a long time ago, but now it's coming back up to the surface, and the meal just turns awkward. The story we're going to study today, the first week of this series, Contrast, would fit into that category of an awkward dinner. 
Um, we're starting, like I said, this new series, Contrast, and we're going to be studying through the book of Luke. And Luke loves uh, to kind of contrast these two ways of thinking, uh, these two ways of living. And it's kind of meant to give us a, heart, a, a fork in the road and say, which way do you want to think and which way do you want to live? Jesus, the master preacher, the master storytelling, it's really a great way to do it. It's to mirror uh, kind of two ways of, of thinking and living against each other and then to kind of ask the question, which one are you? And so that, that's what we're going to do all through these series is study these great stories. Sometimes Jesus told, sometimes like this, it's just a story that happened, but Luke portrays it in a way that you're going to see these two ways, a, a fork in the road of who do I want to be, how do I want to live, and the first one involves a, a, a lunch party, a, a, lunch, a lunch event uh, that Jesus is invited to with a Pharisee, and in the middle of the lunch with the Pharisee, a prostitute ends up coming in, and they both end up having an interaction with Jesus. And really, as you study the two, two kind of people in this story, could you have two people from more different backgrounds than these two? He's looked up to by the religious institutions. She's kind of looked down on. Right? He's a religious leader. She's kind of considered a religious outsider. He makes his living promoting standards. To this point in her life, she's been kind of breaking the religious standards. And so both end up at this lunch in the presence of Jesus. And what happens next is absolutely amazing. Let me show you the story in Luke. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his home for lunch. And Jesus accepted the invitation. As they sat down to eat, eat a woman of the streets, a prostitute, heard that he was there and brought an exquisite flask filled with expensive perfume. Going in, she knelt uh, be, uh, behind him at his feet, weeping with her tears falling down upon his feet. And she wiped them off with her hair and kissed them and poured the perfume on them. When Jesus' host, again, a Pharisee, saw what was happening and who the woman was, he said to himself, now you never want to do this in these gospel stories. He thought to himself, he said to himself, she was thinking, and she's like, he can read your thoughts, All right? So this proves that Jesus is no prophet, for if God had really sent him, he would know what kind of woman this is. And then Jesus spoke up and answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. All right, teacher, go ahead. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 5,000 to one, 500 to the other, but neither of them could pay him back. So he kindly forgave them both, letting them keep the money. Which do you suppose loved him most after that? I suppose the one who owed him the most, Simon answered. Correct, Jesus answered. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look, this woman kneeling here, when I entered your home, you didn't even bother me uh, to offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You refused me the customary kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again from the very first time I entered in. You neglected the usual courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, and she covered my feet with rare perfume. Therefore, her sins, and they are many, are forgiven, for she loved me much. But one who is forgiven little shows little love. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But the men at the table said to themselves, who does this man think he is going around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Two very different ways of approaching Jesus, right? Let's start with the Pharisee. I love the opening description. He says to Jesus, would you come to my home for lunch? 
Uh, and I absolutely love this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to have my, I woke up in a good mood, so I'm going to choose to have my positive hat on, right? There are many different ways you can interpret maybe why he was doing this. Uh, I'm going to choose to interpret it that he had seen enough and heard enough about Jesus that he wants to know more. Right? He's interested in who Jesus is. He's interested in what Jesus is teaching. He's interested in is Jesus who he says he is. So I'm going to choose to see this as he's interested because the other way to see it is that he's like looking for a way to disprove Jesus. He's looking for a way to prove that Jesus isn't who he said he is, but I'm in a good mood. So we're going to see it as the positive, right? That he is interested in Jesus and he wants to learn more. And this is my prayer for us. And this is my prayer for our community. This is my prayer for our families, that we would be a people that seek Jesus, that we would want to know him better, that we would want to worship him more, that we would want to follow him more faithfully. And I love that Jesus responds, don't you? He's like, master, come to my house for lunch. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'll come to your house for lunch. We often think about that, man, that I'm the one that I want to seek Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. And Jesus just kind of tolerates me, right? He puts up with me, right? But in this story, we see a different type of Jesus than maybe you have in your head. It's a Jesus who's like, yeah, I'll come to lunch with you. I'll spend time with you. I'll teach you. I'll show you who I am. That Jesus wants to come to the dinner. He's saying yes to the invitation. And we have this kind of begrudging kind of view of Jesus that I'm called to love him. He puts up with me. But what if he loves you? What if he loves me? What if he loves us? What if he loves the Pharisee? And what if he loves the prostitute? What if he loves the one who is seen as righteous? And what if he loves the one who is seen by their culture as the sinner? What if he is a savior that just loves us. I think that the Pharisee's issue is he thinks he understands Jesus. He thinks he does, but he doesn't understand Jesus at all. And you know why he can't understand Jesus? I think his pride blinds him. His, his pride blinds him to Jesus, and his pride blinds him to grace. And this is why, in, in terms of a list of sins that we could talk about, pride is a really kind of scary, dangerous one. Because pride blinds us to our sin, it blinds us to grace, and it blinds us to Jesus. And because he struggles with pride in particular, have you noticed in the story, I'm sure you did, there is a really judgmental attitude that comes off this guy towards sinners, and, and you can visit churches and start to feel this pretty quickly sometimes that we kind of, in, in church, you can kind of get the impression there's a list of sins where you could still have lunch with Jesus. And there's a list of sins that he would never have lunch with that person. And we kind of end up thinking about it and talking about that in, in, in that way. Isn't it interesting that her sin is listed and his sin is not? He's a sinner too. But it's not Pharisee, the, pride, uh, you know, the, the, the Pharisee, the one who struggled with pride, yet her sin is listed. And we have a tendency to do that, don't we? 
That within the church, there's like this list of sins that we love to talk about and we love to point out. And there's a list of sins that, hey, we just kind of ignore. Or maybe in your family, when you kind of get around the table, there's a list of woes or a list of sins that your family kind of focuses on. And there's a list that you ignore. Even in culture, this is not a uniquely Christian thing. Even in culture, there are cultural sins that we love to talk about and cultural sins that we just kind of ignore. And this is the problem with the Pharisee. He sees her sin super clearly. He doesn't see his own. He sees everyone else's. He doesn't see his own because of pride. And because of his pride, he becomes blind to Jesus. You notice that? He makes some conclusions about Jesus based on Jesus' relationship with the sinner in the story. Right? You, notice, you notice that in the story? He says, well, this surely is no prophet. This truly is no prophet. His conclusion is that the Son of God, the prophet, the light of the world, would never treat a sinner this way. That he has it in his mind. He's blind to Jesus because of his pride. He's like, no, if he were the Son of God, if he were the light of the world, if he were the Savior, he would not treat a sinner with grace. He would not treat a sinner with kindness. He would not treat a sinner with love. And I think he has become theologically blind. I would guess that he, as he read through the Old Testament at the time, as he read through the Old Testament, he had just become blind to God's grace. He would read the Old Testament and say, look at how God judged Israel for their disobedience. But he failed to see the grace-filled sacrificial system that allowed them forgiveness. Or he would read the prophets and he would say, look at how God condemns sin. But he failed to see in the chapters right before that how God had sent the prophet to uh, uh, encourage them to come back to him and that he loved them and he wanted a better life for them. Or he would read Genesis and say, look at how God responds to Adam and Eve's sin. He kicks them out of the garden. But he was blind to God's call to Abraham to rescue and redeem the world. I think he was curious about Jesus. But because of his pride... He didn't understand Jesus at all. Let me show you just a few chapters earlier. Let me show you what happens. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, it is not the healthy. This is just like five chapters before. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came for the sinner. He came to save us to rescue us, to show us a better way. And he came for them, whoever the them is in your family or your group or whatever, you probably have a list of thems. He came for them, but spoiler alert, he came for you because you're a sinner too. And he came for me because I'm a sinner too. And the thing that drives us to Jesus is the thing we struggle with the most. I think. The thing, the thing that keeps us from Jesus, I should say, the thing that keeps us from being driven to Jesus is the thing that we struggle with the most, and that is recognizing our own sin. Recognizing our own sin. Oh, it's easy to recognize cultures, right? 
It's easy to recognize that family member, that neighbor, that friend, whatever. But this is the Pharisee's problem. He is not being driven to Jesus. He's actually now more suspicious of Jesus because of his pride. For us to see our need for salvation and for us to see our need for grace, for us to see our need for new life, it is required that we begin to see our own sin. And this is my concern with the current culture that we live in, is that our kind of culture's answer to sin has become a pervasive uh, denial of sin. That our culture, in a lot of ways, us, our culture that, that we currently live in, we are like the Pharisee in so many ways. That our culture's answer to sin problems, well, well there's not, there is no sin. In particular, I, I'm not a sinner. Uh, and, and so we end up not being driven to Jesus because we can't see our need for it. And we see a different way from the Pharisee in the story. There's a contrast that is meant to be shown from the Pharisee, and that's the woman that comes to Jesus. Her sin is listed. Right? Her sin is listed. It's one of those sins that I guess maybe people feel like they have to list. I don't know. But her sin is listed. But even more than seeing her sin in the story, we see her posture toward Jesus. And that's really the most important thing is I always thought in this story it was peculiar. Like, well, this dude struggles with pride. Why aren't we listing his sin? But, but for whatever reason, hers is listed. But even more than listing of her sin is her posture toward Jesus. So let's look at her posture. First, she seeks Jesus. Now, this is not to be dismissed as just a, a, as a, as a positive attribute of this woman in this story. So many people, when they don't dismiss it. Because so many people, when they recognize their own sin and they see their own sin, they do not run to Jesus. A lot of people run away from him. And not only does she not run away from him, but she creates an incredibly awkward situation. I love her, kind of, for that. Right? She says, I need Jesus so much, I'm going to become a party crasher. I'm going to crash this party. I'm going to create an awkward moment. I'm going to disrupt the, the religious elite. And I am going to find my way to Jesus. I'm reminded of the friends that they needed healing from their friend. And Jesus is in this house and it's just overflowing with people. And the friend's like, we're going to the roof. And we're going to destroy someone's property. We're going to dig a hole in the roof. And we're going to lower our friend down. And he's getting to Jesus. You have to appreciate it, Right? That I am in such need of a savior. I, I am such a sinner that I see my sin and I am being driven to Jesus. And if it means creating an awkward moment, if it means making someone uncomfortable, whatever it means, I am going to find my way to Jesus because he has the salvation I need. He has the grace that I need. He has the new life that I need. And I want to acknowledge for a minute the bravery of this woman. Because some of you, the first time you ever went to church... You didn't know if you were invited. You didn't know if you could be there. You didn't know if it was allowed. I had one person come in here one time and like, I'm like legit worried lightning's going to strike this building. You went in great bravery because you knew you needed Jesus. You needed someone. You needed something. You needed grace. You needed forgiveness. You needed new life. And you know, you knew in your heart of hearts, Jesus had it. And she said, I'm going to get past my being scared, my insecurity, the awkwardness of it, and I'm going to attend a church where maybe I don't know anybody. Some of you were invited by a friend, but some of you, I didn't know anybody, and I am going to walk in because I need his grace, I need his forgiveness, I need his new life, and it's incredibly brave. Now, Northwest, 
Here's my challenge. Let us never, ever be a church where people wonder if they're invited to the lunch. Let's never, ever, ever be a church where people wonder, oh, should I be there? Let's never be a church where people are concerned about how they'll be treated when they come. We want to be a me too church. We want to be a me too church. You're a sinner. You're far from God. You need grace, salvation, and new life. Me too. Me too. So she comes to Jesus. She is kneeling. She's bowing. And I think this is the posture we want to have with Jesus, where we are recognizing his greatness, we're recognizing that he holds grace and salvation and new life in his hands, and we are putting our faith in him, worshiping and following him, and then she demonstrates her love for him. She washes his feet with perfume. When it comes uh, to love and it comes to faith, there's almost always like a practical, sometimes kind of awkward demonstration of our faith and our love for Jesus. So in your marriage, you tell your marriage partner, I love you. You probably also demonstrate it in some way. And some days you'll do like, sometimes you'll do silly things like be outside the window with a boombox on your shoulder, you know, that sort of thing, right? Because you just want to demonstrate your love, right? So you, you say you love your kids, you, you say it, but you also demonstrate it. You say you love your friends. You say it, but you also demonstrate it. This is just something we understand. So she's like, man, I recognize Jesus. She recognizes him better than the Pharisee does. I recognize Jesus, that he holds the mercy I need. He holds the love that I need. He holds the new life that I need. And I am going to practically demonstrate my love for him. Right? Here's what another text says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? He's kind of identifying that we focus a lot on our love for God. He's saying, really, if you want to know the purest form of love, it's God's love for us. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever, uh, no, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And then you skip down a little bit. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So she ends up, as, as this expression of love just pours out of her, she ends up being described as having faith. Great faith. Her love her desire for Jesus, you know what it results in? The relationship, it results in her sins being forgiven. And we have to believe that it resulted in her life being changed. Sometimes I think we get the order of this stuff wrong. We wanna say about ourselves or even about others, renounce your sin, get rid of it, get cleaned up, and then come to Jesus. And somehow this cleaned up version of myself will maybe make me more appealing to him. He'll love me more. He'll accept me more. But first, I've got to get rid of the sin. I've got to get cleaned up. And, and it's not the gospel. It might be your insecurity. It might be your self-consciousness. 
It might be your regret. It is not the gospel. Jesus seems to say, hey, come to me. Come to me. Not come to me as a cleaned up version of yourself. Come to me as you are. Broken, come to me. Battered, come to me. Tired, come to me. Sinful, come to me. Come to me as you are. Crash the party. Interrupt the lunch. Make a spectacle of yourself. Come to me. Dig a hole in the roof. Whatever you have to do, whatever brave act it takes, Jesus says, come to me. Not some sanitized, cleaned up, nice version of you. Come to me as you are. I will forgive you. I will save you. I will give you my Holy Spirit. I will give you my example. And together, we will begin to move forward. And it's when we come to Jesus and we confess our sins to him that he is faithful and just and will forgive them. And we sometimes think, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. If you, you there's an uncomfortable, if you like preach forgiveness of sins, it's going to result in sinapalooza, right? It's going to just be some major party over there. The opposite's also true. So the, the opposite is instead true, excuse me. That when we understand the forgiveness of sins, we understood saying what it took to forgive those sins, and we end up renouncing them more and coming to Jesus even more. It's when we come to Jesus that our love for him grows. Just like this woman in this day. You see, kind of as the story unfolds, she's making more and more a spectacle of what she's doing, right? The, the Pharisee, who doesn't understand his own sin, that his sin really probably should be listed as well, he, he doesn't understand his own sin. He's reserved. He's respectable. He's dressed the right way. He knows the religious language. He looks the part. This woman that comes in, as the story unfolds, her passion and love for Jesus begins to grow more and more and more. And by the end of it, you can just tell that she full on loves Jesus and who he is and what he's offering her. See, a lot of times we kind of get this backward too. A lot of times we think that our message to people needs to be hate the behavior. Right? Hate the behavior. Right? Hate lying. Hate greed. Hate anger. All that stuff. And you can have some success in that. But the Bible would teach that more than hate the the thing, the Bible would say that there is a principle called greater love. That, that is actually even more effective. And that is when you can teach someone to love something more, they'll overcome a whole lot better. So instead of just hate, 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 it becomes an overwhelming love. So it's like love the truth, love generosity, love grace, love Jesus. And this principle of greater love will help us overcome things that hate wouldn't. And it's not that, that wanting to renounce and be done with our sin is wrong. That's not true at all. It's that there is something powerful about love and overcoming, uh, growing in our love for the things of Christ that that helps us to overcome in a way that hate never could. To come to Jesus is to grow in your faith. The closer we get, the more our faith increases over time, the more we look like Jesus. So you got these two people in the story. One is prideful, self-sufficient, doesn't really see his need for Jesus. And one is humble, broken, 
aware of their sin, acutely aware of their sin, in need of a savior, a Lord, and a friend. And then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, look, do you see this woman kneeling over here? I'm sure the Pharisee was just like, what is she doing? We are trying to have a respectable lunch. We're trying to have a, what is she doing? Look, you see her kneeling here? When I entered your home, you didn't even bother to offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You refused me the customary kiss of greeting, but she has kissed my feet again and again from the first moment I came in. You neglected the usual courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, and she has covered my feet with rare perfume. Though her sins, and they are many, therefore her sins, and they are many, are forgiven. For she loved me much. But one who is forgiven little shows little love. How do we get there? Well, I think we allow this text to do for us what Jesus was trying to do for the Pharisee. We feel conviction. We see our sin and we name it. We see the sin that is keeping us from seeing our need for Jesus. The thing that is causing us to stand in judgment of others. We see whatever it is and we name it. And let me just give a name that it might be. Pride. Pride. And we name it, and we reject it, and we run to Jesus, and we allow greater love and greater faith to rule the day. But we see the thing like, what is keeping me from just letting go and running to Jesus for grace and mercy? And what is the thing that is holding me back? It's probably the same thing in this story. It's a religious or cultural pride that keeps us from doing that. So may we see it, name it, reject it, and run to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for Jesus and for his grace. As we get ready to receive communion together, may this be a humbling moment for those of us that maybe struggle with pride. May 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 this be a moment that we see our sin Maybe sins that in this culture are not necessarily named or focused on, but maybe like like pride or arrogance or materialism. Maybe for the first time we see it and we name it and we are humbled by your death, burial, and resurrection. And we're like, man, I need Jesus. I need you. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your spirit. I need your new life. Right now, may I humble myself as we receive communion and come running to you. And may we receive your forgiveness and your grace. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together as a church family. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other is uh, the cup that represents his blood. And this is kind of that humbling moment I was just praying about. That Jesus, we need you. We need your grace. We don't want to be like the Pharisee that, that refuses to see our own sin. May we see it and run to you. And Jesus is like, as you come to me, my grace is sufficient. 
My grace is sufficient. And so may we receive his grace and his mercy and his new life as we receive communion together. They'll pass it out and you just kind of spend a few moments thanking Jesus for that grace. And then I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll receive it together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you uh, for your grace and your mercy. May we run to you. May we see our sin and run to you. The very thing that is hard for us to do, that we resist, might be the thing that's keeping us from you. And that is a recognition of our sin and a recognition of our need for your saving grace. May we see it. May we run to you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing uh, one more song. Will you stand with me? I know it's uh, kind of a, maybe a weird thing to pray about for the first week of the series here, but my prayer for you in your relationship to Jesus, my prayer, maybe this week would you make a spectacle of yourself. May you recognize your need for a Savior. May you make a spectacle of yourself and run to him. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's sing one last song. I'm a dumb